We are back with an exciting new season of Breakout Culture. It's amazing, frankly, that I've made it to my desk because I'm stopped so frequently in the street by people who tell me how much they love this podcast and the incredible chemistry between Charlotte and myself. And it's no wonder because this is our 47th episode. And in case you just needed to be reminded, I'm Ed Vasey and I'm the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor. And it's an absolute delight to be back after a long summer away. Now, it won't have escaped any of your attention that autumn is the time for art fairs. So we've got lots of guests from the art world coming up in the next few podcasts. So who better to sponsor us than Martin Miller's Gin? As regular listeners will know, the late Martin Miller, creator of his delicious eponymous gin, was a visionary, iconoclast and entrepreneur. In 1999, he set out to reinvent gin, transforming it by blending only the finest botanicals and then using a unique dual distillation process with water from Iceland, not the shop, the country. When Martin (laughs) Miller told friends he was going to do this, their response was, you're mad. Let's do it. And to this day, the Martin Miller brand motto is from madness to genius. The from madness to genius motto is why Martin Miller's gin has such an affinity with the arts, because so many artistic ideas start off as utter lunacy and end up as enduring works of genius. I'm sure Martin Miller never imagined his gin would become the most highly awarded in the world. And on a much lower transformational level, we certainly never thought we'd be going this long when we set out as lockdown culture 57 episodes ago. We're very happy still to be here, thanks in part to Martin Miller's gin. So now let's turn to our first guest, Ed. We're going to kick off today by telling you about the first ever exhibition to be dedicated to the portraits of the great pre-Raphaelite artist, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Most of you will be familiar with his paintings, but astonishingly, it has actually been almost two decades since there's been an exhibition of his work in Britain. That's all about to change because this Friday, Rossetti's Portraits opens at the wonderful Holborn Museum in Bath. Here to tell us about it is the exhibition's curator, Sylvie Broussin. Good morning, Sylvie. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, it's lovely to have you, Sylvie. And I'm really looking forward to seeing this exhibition. In fact, I'm going next week. And Fantastic. I know I'm in Yeah, and I know I'm in for an absolute treat because the museum alone I know is worth a visit. So can you start by telling our listeners who might not know Bath very well a bit about the museum itself as well as what they're going to see in the exhibition? Yeah, of course. So the Holborn Museum, as you said, it's it's located in Bath. It's in the east of the city at the very end of Great Pulteney Street, which is a sort of grand po- promenade. Um, that leads from the sort of centre of the city throughout to the east. We hold a collection of fine and decorative arts that was formed, the core of the collection was formed by William Holborn, who was um, the fifth baronet of Menstrie, which is a, a village just outside of Stirling in Scotland. Him and his three sisters moved to Bath in the 19th century, and he was a great collector in the mid-19th century. The collection was given to the, uh, the people of Bath in 1882, by his his sister, Marianne Barbara. Um, and from then, we have, the museum has continued to, to grow its collection, particularly with um, 18th century British portraits. And so I am particularly interested in the Pre-Raphaelites and Dante Gabriel Rossetti. And this exhibition, Rossetti's Portraits, is um, an exhibition that explores Rossetti's relationship with the genre of portraiture. So Rossetti, he isn't really known for his, for his portraits, but nevertheless, it is a genre 
genre that was prevalent throughout his career. So from the kind of mid 1840s and early 1850s, where he is, um, he draws these really beautiful, uh, intimate portraits of his siblings and uh, members of the early Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, right through to the very end uh, years of his life, where he creates these fantastic, um, this really remarkable sequence of images of Jane Morris, who was the wife of William Morris, and Rossetti held this sort of this sort of obsession with in the last sort of two decades of of his life. So by far the vast majority of the portraits that Rossetti produced and the majority of the portraits in this exhibition are of the people that he he knew, particularly his family, friends, fellow artists, and the three significant women in his life who were um, the artist and model and his eventual wife, Elizabeth Siddle, Fanny Cornforth, who was uh, a model and his possible mistress and um, also his companion really from the 1860s and then it, intermittently throughout the rest of his life. And then, and then as I've already mentioned, mentioned Jane Morris. We also wanted to include works that blur the boundaries between portraiture and other genres and particularly kind of narrative compositions. So Rossetti continually asked his his family and friends and, and those three women, Siddle, Cornforth and Morris, to, to pose and model for his subject paintings. And he often chose subjects that in some way reflected the identity and, and the lives of, of those models. Great. And I too have been to the Holborn Museum because you've got an amazing extension, modern extension, that's uh, award-winning, I believe. So it is definitely worth a visit. And um, I'm interested that you sort of spotted the opportunity to do this exhibition when you would have thought that there's a sort of pre-Raphaelite exhibition every other week, because they are absolute, I mean, I ha hate to be crude about this, but they're absolute bankers, as it were. A pre-Raphaelite exhibition has the punters streaming in. So why do you think, as it were, an exhibition of this stature is the first to come along for almost 20 years? So uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think that in terms of Rossetti and an exhibition that's dedicated specifically to Rossetti, the last major exhibition was in 2003 at the Walker Art Gallery. And since then, there hasn't been a specific show dedicated to Rossetti. I think one of the things that has really happened in the past two, three decades is that there's been a really, there's been a shift in focus to thinking about some of the lesser known figures in the um, pre-Raphaelite movement. So thinking particularly about women and women's significant contribution to the pre-Raphaelite movement. So I think that that has quite rightly been something that's that's really sort of taken prominence in, in exhibition programming. I'm thinking particularly about the pre-Raphaelite sisters exhibition, for example, that was on at the National Portrait Gallery back in, in 2019. I think that Rossetti's portraits comes at quite a timely, it's quite timely because of that, because I think that there's been so much work done by amazing kind of curators and, and scholars and academics around this, these, these women, that now we can look at the portraits, Rossetti's portraits, and have a much more rounded view of the sitter and an understanding of them and their lives and, and their identities. And I hope that that's something that, that comes across in, in the exhibition, when, when people do visit. You've also got an exhibition of photographs by Sunil Gupta accompanying the show. Now, I've seen a couple of these photographs and they're quite extraordinary as he sort of reinterprets famous pre-Raphaelite paintings to portray gay activists in India. Yeah, so as you've said, that this is a series of photographs um, by Sunil Gupta. It's called The New Pre-Raphaelites and it explores that legacy of pre-Raphaelite art in contemporary visual culture and also the rights of the LGBTQI plus community in 
in India. Um, so the series specifically addresses Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which was known as the Anti-Sodomy Act. This was a law that was introduced in the 1860s. It was well under, under British rule. And it basically criminalised and discriminated against homosexuality. The law was repealed in, in 2018. And so at the time that Sunil Gupta was creating these works, um, he created this series in 2008, this law was still was still active. So the series, um, in the series, um, Gupta invited friends um, from the LGBT community and fellow activists to, as you said, um, to reenact famous pre-Raphaelite paintings, particularly works from Tate's collection. So including kind of John Everett Millet's The Bridesmaid and Mariana and also Rossetti's Paolo and Francesco de Rimini. And I think it complements really well the Rossetti portraits exhibition because in these, these works, these were people people who were criminalized for their for their sexuality and so their participation in in this series really is a is an act of of resistance and and courage and we are we're immensely proud at the Holborn to to be displaying this show alongside alongside the Rossetti portraits. Oh well they look absolutely fantastic they're so colorful and beautiful thank you very very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So in lockdown, we talked quite a bit on this podcast about the art and culture you can access at home with Sky Arts, Digital Theatre and National Theatre Live and so on. But now summer's definitely coming to an end. We thought you might want to watch even more fabulous global dance opera and theatre from the comfort of your sofa. So Marquee TV has been dubbed Netflix for the Arts by the Financial Times. And this autumn, it's really expanding its schedule to bring in all kinds of exciting content from Italy, Australia and America, as well as Britain. It's also going to be introducing a spoken word strand with interviews with William Boyd, Maggie Smith and Ian McKellen and and many more. And the really good news for listeners is that you you get a 50% discount on the annual subscription. And we'll tell you how to do that later. But here to tell us all about it is co-founder and CEO, Simon Walker. Good morning, Simon. Hello, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. How exciting to be on your pod. I didn't know Simon was a co-founder. Who's the other founder? We decided that the arts are universal. And rather than just set up in London, we set up simultaneously in London and New York. So I have two wonderful co-founders in New York City, Mark Kirshner and Kathleen Afnador. So it enabled us to be global from the get-go. What an inadvertently perfect segue to how I can (laughs) open our discussion, because I was going to highlight the what Charlotte calls the seriously global programme. It's got exclusive content from Teatro alla Scala and Teatro Real. I'm guessing that's Italian and Spanish. Correct. Opera and ballet from Australia dance from the San Francisco Dance Film Festival and lots of great theatre, including Broadway classics. There's the US view. So tell us about some of this season's highlights. Well, you know, I mean, the thank you for highlighting. You've done it for me. I don't have to do it, Ed. You've gone through them all. Well, you've got a riff off me, Simon, now. You've got a riff off me. I think the thing that is most interesting is that it is the first time we've done a cross-genre digital season. I mean, the arts... It's the autumn season, or as Mark and Cafe would say, the fall season is the most exciting time in the year for us. So what we've done is extend our existing partnerships, long-standing partnerships we have with outfits like the London Philharmonic Orchestra, the London Symphony Orchestra, 
where we've got exclusive new concerts coming up. And then these exclusive partnerships with international houses like La Scala, obviously world, world famous, and Teatro Real. I mean, streaming is on the march all over the world, as we know, and people often say we're Netflix for the performing arts. Well, I like to think, I mean, streaming is a wonderful thing and we love it, don't we? But it sometimes takes you down this rabbit hole of box sets and binge watching things that aren't necessarily as nourishing as the performing arts is. Um, and just as Netflix and co have started to localize their content. So if you're watching Netflix in Italy, a lot of their production budgets go into Italian content. Um, so at Marquee TV, we're wanting to expand what we do into um, local markets too. So we're, we're focusing on the big international houses. We're focusing on exclusive partnerships you can only get when you subscribe to Marquee TV. And I'll tell your listeners how to do that with this super discount Charlotte mentioned in a second. Oh, why don't I tell you now? Go to marquee.tv forward slash culture and you will find a super duper special offer just for breakout culture listeners. Oh, well done. That was going to be well, my now you shot Charlotte's fox. Because she was going to ask you that. How is, she, how is she going to get back in in this conversation? Well, I want to know about the spoken word series. I think that sounds really good because that sounds very British as well. Or is it? Is it not just British? No, it, well, it's not just British. Um, it's starting British. So we, we experimented last year with the Cheltenham Festival. And, you know, I mean, again, everyone was... All festivals were challenged last year, weren't they? Because a lot of it was Zoom and remote and... No, not quite as exciting as we're used to. But what we've noticed is, I mean, the thing that's different, you mentioned some other kind of art streaming services at the beginning. The thing that's different about Marquee TV is this cross-genre approach. We genuinely think that the arts is chicken soup for the soul and nourishing, and we can get audiences who might come for dance, who will stay for theatre, who might come for music and stay for opera or ballet. And the fastest growing category, actually, interestingly, in the arts is poetry and spoken word. And it's super hot amongst your um, younger, your millennials and younger, this sort of Instagram generation. And it seems to play incredibly well on Instagram, actually. There's a lot of amazing, you think of George the Poet and people like this who have just built these enormous followings. So our mission, if you like, we're trying to be the ultimate arts companion and bring together all of this content. So it would be remiss of us not to have spoken word. So spoken word's coming probably before the end of the year. Oh, that sounds really exciting. And so what, they, it's going to be interviews with them? Well, no, it's the perform. I mean, we're about performance, right? So it will be performance-led. But obviously the other big thing in streaming is podcasting. Um, uh, you may have heard of it. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at the moment, we're a highly video-rich service, but we'll be launching podcasting as well later in the year. So we will be aggregating together the best of the um, performance, uh, you know, in terms of audio performances, um, but also the ancillary stuff. We're about, you know, making life easy, putting things in people's hands, aggregating together the best of what's out there. So as well as our originals, so we'll have some original content that we've just commissioned um, that will be audio, spoken word, and kind of podcast in format. We will aggregate together the best of what's out there. And also what we'll do is try and work with people who have spoken word you know, festivals or poetry festivals, poetry slams. Ed, you'll know what they're called. They call them a slam, don't they? They do. They're called poetry slams. But it is interesting. You're, I mean, I've only just tweaked, really, how much audio is taking over the world. I, I had uh, lunch with a friend of mine, a distinguished former civil servant, who said grandly that he hadn't read a book in three years. And actually what he meant was 
He'd read he'd the whole. To of, them. <laughs> he'd read. He'd read inverted commas the whole of Proust because he listens to audiobooks. And of course, I actually don't like listening to music on earphones. I don't know why. And I do all this endless running. I'm doing a marathon in a month, and I've missed out without stupidly thinking it through. Uh, the opportunity to read the entire classical canon. Um, <laughs> you haven't run that much. <laughs> I have. You should follow me on Strava, Charlotte. So I think audio is going to take over. I mean, it is very interesting how quickly our habits have changed from I very rarely now watch television when it's scheduled. Yeah, never. Yeah, agree. My channels are now not BBC One and BBC Two. They're iPlayer, Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime. And audio is taking over the world. And marquee TV obviously fits into this changing of changing of habits where people select what they want to watch or listen to as and when they want to watch and listen to it. Yeah, I think, look, it's it's exactly that, isn't it? I mean, everyone has their, their different habits, but the behaviour has completely changed. I mean, I love, I was just listening uh, before we started to the Today programme on Radio 4, and there was a lovely, they, you know, they've got Thomas Schumacher, the, the Disney theatrical boss on talking about Frozen the musical but of course I had to come on and talk to you guys which is much more interesting but the beauty is I can just pause it because I was listening to it on my BBC Sounds app. Yeah, You can um, go back I, to it Simon you haven't lost that opportunity. There you go it's still there and, and and I will do it while I jump on my bike to cycle to my next opportunity clearly using my open air headphones so they're not blocking my ears and keeping me safe while I'm out there in the London traffic. But no, you're exactly right. And I think that the, the other thing that is happening, which is happened first in audio, but will come next in video, is this personalization. You know, audio, radio, podcasts are not a communal opportunity to, to consume media, are they? You tend not to sit around with the family and listen to a podcast. They tend to be a more solitary thing. So bringing people together for big performances, that's again what we're trying to do. I mean, it's a differentiator for Marquee TV. We're, yeah, we're an app. You can watch us on your phone or your laptop. But we spend a lot of time and money making sure that we're available on your TV, on your Apple TV, on your Amazon Fire, on your Comcast box in the States, coming to Sky, hopefully, and Freeview and these other services here too. And that's a different experience. Um, and what we find is what people watch on their main TV set are you know the big productions and the exclusives and then people kind of indulge their personal passions on their laptop or ipod or their their mobile phone but can we just get into the nitty gritty a minute following on from what you were just saying how do you watch it here so tell our listeners exactly how they can find you well you go to marquee.tv which is our website or you go to your your friendly app store whether you're android or apple or if you're on a uh, a smart TV to the, um, or an Apple TV or an Amazon um, Fire Stick or a Roku box. You go to the app store in whatever environment you're in, search for Marquee TV, download the app and you can start watching. There's a bunch of free stuff in there, but if you want to you know, unlock everything, then um, you need to subscribe. It's like Netflix is an all you can eat subscription, which is $8.99 a month or um, 89 pounds a year but unless you are a listener to this podcast and you go to marquee.tv slash culture and then you'll get that for half price the ludicrous price of 44 pounds um, which wouldn't even buy you an interval round of drinks at one of these performances and you can watch them all for a year as many times as you like with as many friends as you like um, and ed might even come around and make you a gin and tonic i'll bring around a ready-made tin 
No, Miller's. No, Ed, you'll be coming round. Oh, Don't no, forget. No, with Miller's. Miller's. Yes, I'm going to bring Mi- Miller's gin. I love Miller's gin. <laughs> I genuinely love Miller's gin. You're are going we to come. Miller's gin? We, we are. are. We are. We love I, I love some Miller's gin too. Do you know what? I, it, it's interesting. I've been, you know, we, we used to have a line in one of our press releases, which is, you know, your eight ninety nine is cheaper than your half-time gin and tonic. But, you know, getting that sponsored by uh, a gin or a tonic company was uh, one of our mini mission so you've beaten us to it you must talk to miller's gin they're the best sponsors in the world we love them and we love the product fantastic well we've just look hey we've just give, given them the perfect shout out haven't we and i'll make sure that we uh, we follow up on that after a hard summer i've not had a drop to drink through the whole of september until today and the 10th tonight at six o'clock i will be allowed i'm allowing myself a, a drink and t- and i've been thinking about what it would be i was thinking of a negroni um, but actually, I'm thinking we'll go with a, a, a Miller's gin and tonic. How about that? And on that note, it's time to go. It can't get any better than that. It can't get any better than that. We didn't mention all our Australian content and our partnership with the, the Scottish Ballet coming, Starstruck, and the Gene Kelly Amazing Love Letter to Ballet. Just tell us very quickly about Gene Kelly. Well, I mean, this is the most exciting original, I think, that we're working on at the moment, um, if the others will forgive me. It's uh, the Scottish Ballet have got a production called Starstruck, where we've been been working with Gene Kelly's widow, who is the most amazing custodian of his legacy. And it's essentially a love letter to to ballet. It's, you know, obviously he's best known for Hollywood dance numbers, but as a choreographer, Gene was was one of the first to really bring the American style to Europe. And he, you know, influenced a generation of dance makers. So this is a really playful new production. It's a UK premiere of the piece. It's set to Gershwin's effortlessly cool uh, concerto in F, bits of Chopin in there. It's going to be a ticketed event on Marquee TV in November. So it's a super duper, what we call a pay-per-view, a TVOD event. Um, but there'll be a whole bunch of other things that come through that Scottish Ballet Partnership. And again, it's world exclusive, extraordinary content, and you can only get it on Marquee TV. Well, it sounds brilliant. Thank you so much, Simon. It's well, no, thanks to you. Thank you for having me on. I'm glad we managed to do it. I'd love to come back another time and um, all power to you. To round off the week, we have a story that Martin Miller would enjoy. It's all about transforming the most everyday functional space with art. On Monday, the 20th of September, the brand new Battersea Power Station Underground Station opens on the Northern Line. Now, I have to say the opening of this new station and indeed Nine Elms has completely passed me by and I'm thrilled and excited but I'm particularly excited because in the ticket hall is a major new permanent artwork commissioned by Art on the Underground by the Brazilian-born Alexander de Cunha. It's called Sunset, Sunrise, Sunset, and it's a monumental sculpture. It's nearly 100 metres long. Alexander needs no introduction. He lives between London and Sao Paulo and is known the world over for transforming daily objects, but what he calls tropicalizing them. So here to tell us all about it is the artist himself, and the woman with the best job on the planet, Eleanor Pinfield, who's head of art on the underground. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. They're both in shock. They're both in shock <laughs> by that introduction. They're literally left speechless <laughs> by my enthusiasm. Well, I'm not surprised. Well, thank you so much for coming on at such short notice. Now, this work has been seven years in the making. So can you start, Eleanor, by telling us why you chose Alexandra for this work and what the thinking was behind creating it in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I just said there, we, we're TFL is opening two new stations on the Northern Line, which is just a really massive deal to build 
actual news stations to extend one of the lines we know so well, the Northern Line. So I was really excited to find that TFL were committed to having art, you know, within these spaces. I took up this job in 2014. So it's really been something that for me is like the whole way through my journey within TFL has been about this amazing artwork at Battersea Power Station. So there was a commitment at that point to say we want to have world-class art. TFL has had this wonderful program that I get to lead, Art on the Underground, for many years. It started really in about 2000, but I'm sure some of your uh, listeners will know that the London Underground's had a really long relationship with art and artists that goes back way beyond that, particularly into the 1910s, 1920s period, um, with some really amazing artists without in 20th century art history have, have been involved in the London Underground. That from Henry Moore, um, Eric Gill, Jacob Epstein, uh, Man Ray, you know, amazing figures. So I feel this incredible opportunity to take forward that mantle into the 21st century in terms of bringing some of the greatest artists to Londoners' daily life. And in 2015, uh, we were looking, wondering what to do. And I had a short list of artists, of which Ali was one, and invited some proposals. And I mean, as soon as I opened up Ali's and read it, it was a two-page statement with some sketches and visualisations. And it just... It just felt everything to me. It, it was very, very simple in one sense, but extremely sensitive to the space. Um, Ali, as we'll hear more from him, pr proposed a kinetic sculpture, a sculpture that uses something that we're all quite familiar with, the rotating billboard that we used to see a lot in the past decades or so, but now is really going out of fashion. Using that rotating billboard to create colour around the ideas of sunsets and sunrises. So using the colours, the hues that we are used to seeing in the sky, bringing those into a ticket hall, a subterranean ticket hall, and giving a sense almost from within that space that you're looking out onto a large dramatic sky. It from from reading the description, I, I knew it was something very special, the way that Ali was thinking about movement through the space, the way that people were moving, the way that the movement of the billboard would pick up on that motion if you're a commuter and you're rushing through the station or if you're taking a little bit longer on the weekends. I just had this feeling that the work would be extraordinary in the space. And I'm glad to say, as we've been looking at it actually complete this uh, week, um, Ali and I, it's it's really extraordinary to see how it's working now and I can't wait for the public to see it on Monday. Brilliant well Ali if I may call you that now tell us all about what attracted you to the commission I mean it's a, a, a obviously a brilliant opportunity uh, and your work will be seen by millions of commuters and Eleanor's already explained a, lo a lot of the thinking about it but we'd love to hear from you as well. Yeah I think as artists well, one thing we constantly do is to look around and imagine our works in places that we ideally would like to display. I have to say, um, Art on the Underground is not just a, not only a program that I'm very familiar with, but the idea of having a public permanent commission in, in the, on the London Underground was always a sort of dream, if you like. So when, I, when this opportunity came, I embraced and I'm very pleased. And I mean, I'm thrilled that it's now happening. We've had many conversations that you might imagine. <laughs> But it's really good. We never had this one about uh, about the selection process, and then um, so I think it's really good. It's amazing for me to hear um, how this work started from the beginning. What have the reactions been so far? From from have, have any of the public actually seen it yet, or is it still deeply under wraps? No, no public, no public have got in yet. But we have. Um, it has been really wonderful seeing uh, station staff. They have been 
What do you think, Ellie? They've been excited. They've been intrigued. They, I mean, they seem to love it. Whenever I've tried to talk to them, as soon as it starts moving behind me, everyone just stops listening to anything I'm saying and goes, look, look, at, look at the artwork, look at the artwork. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really surprised also with the reaction. It's, uh, well, uh, we haven't had the, the work open to the public, but the people who experienced they all have a very, very positive reaction. I love that idea of like using a public space and a lot of public space, but also being kind to the building, to the viewers, to the public, uh, instead of intruding the space and invading their space. I feel that the presence of the work there is something quite subtle, is colorful, it is big, but it can also be seen as a quite subtle interference in the architecture which I like. Can you describe it a bit more? Because it goes all along, you know, goes up for masses of metres along one wall. They're basically two long panels uh, facing each other on, on the ticket hall. So when you go down the escalators, you start seeing the work uh, on one side. And as you enter and you go to, uh, through the barriers and you go down the escalators, then you find the other panel facing this first one. But they are basically two long freezes quite, uh, placed quite high up and they have colours as Eleanor described, they are uh, loosely based on the idea of sunsets and sunrise and they, they change. So I think there is, I mean, I, I, I keep thinking about the, a key word to describe the work and I, it's interesting because through the development, you know, developing the work, I talked a lot about movement and now it's becoming more clear to me that instead of movement, this work for me is about changes because it's, it's, there is always, it could be a situation that somebody goes there and describes to someone else a large yellow panel. And then this other person comes next day and see something else of a different color or happens to be there when the panel is changing. Well, the point is that it'll be Instagram the hell out of. I like the idea. I mean, I think that's what the work is about. It's about reaching people. It's about this. Um, I always, with my work in general, I like the idea that people can see the work and um, imagine the work after, or even like make themselves the work after they've seen the work. So I think this will happen. And I'm hoping that people will interact with this work in a similar way. I think Eleanor, Charlotte and I should make ourselves available for the opening. I think so too. <laughs> come down. Please come down on Monday. Yeah. There's going to be some be... sort of Prosecco and canapes. There's going to be an art. We're not, allowed, we're not allowed those in stations, as, as we all know, thanks to no alcohol bylaws <laughs> on the tube. But uh, yeah, def you should definitely come down. Now, now, I gather, Ali, that there's, you've got a show coming up in Brighton, haven't you? Yeah, the show is already on. It's, um, it's, uh, and it's, uh, it's on until the 2nd of October at the CCA Brighton, which is a really amazing space. So I have two locations at the moment, they are close to the water. So there's one in Brighton, one by the river, come to both. And what are you showing at Brighton? Um, I'm showing a selection of um, recent works or sculptures, mostly, basically sculptures. They are works that I had, uh, I presented in, in Naples last year and they traveled here. And those sculptures made of um, everyday objects, uh, things like cleaning mops that they are changed into tapestry-like hanging pieces, 
um, and, and other works in other works with found objects and usually like industrialized objects that are changing to other things. Do the people of Brazil regard it as prestigious that you have been commissioned to make this artwork in the world's oldest underground system? Yeah, that's I think it's it's been one of those things. I mean, as I said, for me, sometimes it's even hard to like hide my enthusiasm about showing this because I am unashamedly promoting and saying listen I'm doing the biggest thing in one of the stations of the London underground in London so I think in Brazil like everybody who follows my work they are sort of sharing the same thing with me it's it's a huge deal for me uh, being from another country being living here for 20 years and have this um, it's a mark to me like both through you know through my work and my relationship with my work and especially with the city that the city that I love and I decided to live and have this connection through this work so for me it's it's a huge thing and I think people in Brazil and people who follow my work really appreciate that. Brilliant well we won't smuggle because Eleanor was so firm about this any Kuiperinis <laughs> <laughs> on Monday afternoon but we all look forward to um seeing it thank you so much for coming on thank you yeah thank you thank, thank you. you now before we go i'm sure listeners won't need reminding that the chelsea flower show opens this week and since we're focusing a lot on art this autumn do go and see great oaks from little acorns an installation by charlotte smithson it's the second public art commission to be unveiled by the oak project and explores our relationship with the natural world via arts culture and creativity are you going to the flower show ed well funny you should say that i bumped into the nominatively deterministically named keith weed who is none other than the president of the Royal Horticultural Society. I think he's a highly successful ad man. I think he came out of the out of WPP and he's now retired and is sitting on so much money that he's going to give himself up to charitable causes like the Royal Horticultural Society. And I said, can I come to the opening night? Because the opening night of the Chelsea Flash Show is actually the most important business event of the year. I think there's a statistic somewhere that in terms of net worth, in the room or in the garden as it were it's the most valuable event of the year in london and i said can i come and he looked at me and said no <laughs> oh. so there you go that and the royal academy summer exhibition ball which neither of us were invited to and which we're going to bring up with our guest are the two things that have upset me the most Oh, well, we do have Axel Ruger coming up, so we will bring it up with him, indeed. Yeah, yeah. we will. A bit of a warning there for Axel. <laughs> right, so that's all we've got time for this week, but a huge welcome back to you all, Ben and girls, Rosemary in Peru, and everyone else who's still listening. We're not going anywhere till Christmas, so please stay with us and subscribe. And please do subscribe to the Country and Townhouse and Great British Brand newsletters too. Find them on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk forward slash newsletter. And I urge you to try a delicious Martin Miller's original gin and tonic that Martin Miller described as a gin that tastes of gin. But remember, please drink responsibly. Now you can find out more about the original and all their other delicious gins by going to martinmillersgin.com, where you can also claim a 10% discount till the end of October by using the code BREAKOUT2021 at the checkout. All those details will be on our website. But as Ed said, a very, very warm welcome back to you all and hope you listen again next week. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>